What's going on in the world today that has you most concerned? Most concerned. The coronavirus, that's up there. The economy, had a really bad week if you don't know. The upcoming presidential election, or the state of politics in general these days. Or perhaps you're going through a season of life with a high level of uncertainty. A lot of potential trouble. Whether that's with health, or finances, or parenting, or marriage, or fill in the blank. Or, or we could get at something similar by asking something more positively. What has perhaps happened in the last month in your life that's brought great encouragement to you? Real reason to celebrate. Or perhaps a moment of real relief after a legitimate concern was alleviated. Maybe you got the promotion you've been waiting for. The money came through for this or that need. The test came back negative. Praise God. Or there was some other scary close call. But everyone is safe. Well, we come to a passage today in 1 Thessalonians 3, if you would turn there in your Bibles. It's a passage which doesn't exactly confront our typical concerns and encouragements, but it does offer some alternative space for what usually vies for our greatest concerns, our greatest reliefs, our greatest encouragements. And so just speaking personally, this is a passage that has, for me in the past week, had me pondering my, my typical concerns, my typical reliefs, my typical encouragements, and making me wonder whether these demonstrate a heart that's a little too tied to the here and now, a little too tied to the temporary, a little too tied to what is physical and touchable and seeable. It's a passage that I find both convicting and alluring, draws me in. I want to see more of it in my life. I want it to transform and reprioritize my greatest concerns, my greatest cares, my greatest comforts. And I pray it would do the same for you today. So let's read it. I'll read all of 1 Thessalonians 3. Our passage for today picks up in verse 6, meaning we left off last week in verse 5. But I'll read all of chapter 3 so that we can see the context. Paul writes, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith 
for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you're standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see, your, see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Well, we could call this section From Concern to Comfort. Our passage from last Sunday, stretching all the way back to chapter 2, verse 17, to chapter 3, verse 5, that showed us Paul's concern for these young Thessalonian Christians. They were of a spiritual nature. Had the preaching of the gospel been in vain? Had they given up on the faith? That's Paul's concern. But then verse 6 of chapter 3 turns to his comfort in light of Timothy's report that the Thessalonian Christians are indeed persevering. And that comfort then leads Paul to thank God for the good news in verses 9 and 10. And then he turns to petition God for even more in their Christian walk. Verses 11 to 13. And so our our headings go like this, an encouraging report, a word of thanks, and a prayer for more. It's a simple, straightforward passage, and yet we will find that our hands are full with needed application uh, in light of this simple but profound passage. And by the way, if you're not a Christian, we want you to know that you're so welcome here, we're so glad you're with us, and we think it could be eternally useful for you to be here this morning, just as you are. You should know that this passage is written by an apostle to a church, to Christians. And so it's not directly related to you, but as you listen and as I address Christians in this room, here's how you can maybe take this in. Listen to this sort of worldview. Listen to what Paul says about this community and see if you want in. I'll tell you how at the end. First, there's an encouraging report. Now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love. As I said, the previous verses established that Timothy had been sent by the Apostle Paul to get a report on the Thessalonians. And he had returned with a good report. In fact, it says good news here. That's actually the Greek word for what is almost always translated gospel in the Bible. Gospel. 
There's only one other place in the New Testament where this specialized Greek word is used for something other than the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. That's what we think of as the gospel. But here's another kind of small g, gospel. It's the good report of the Thessalonians' faith and love. Notice those two words, faith and love. Paul hitches those two words specifically together a couple of dozen times. He loves it. It's such a great summary for what Christians have come to believe and what Christians need to do. Faith and love, they're subtly profound. You could think of one as the root and another one as the fruit. You could think of one as being vertical and Godward and another one being horizontal and related to others. You think of one as belief and another as behavior. So Paul can say in Galatians 5, verse 6, he speaks of faith working through love. So Paul here was encouraged by the Thessalonians' faith that it was true faith and that it was living an active faith. It was faith that was accompanied by that, that most fundamental indication of true faith, Love for others. Didn't Jesus say, John 13, by this all men will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Paul was comforted, as it says in verse 7, through their faith. And this, in spite of ongoing distress and affliction, he says in verse 7. So despite the relentless persecutors chasing them from one city to the next, from Thessalonica to Berea, then to Corinth. Despite the the less than fruitful response to the gospel that took place in the city of Athens in Acts 17, and despite newfound enemies in Corinth in Acts 18, despite all this, he was comforted, soothed, assured by the Thessalonians' faith and love. Now this comfort should really work in two directions. So we can think of our own faith, my faith, being a comfort and encouragement to others. And we can also think of how Paul thinks of it here, that others' faith and love can be of great encouragement and comfort to us. At least it should, though it doesn't always. It really starts with concern. We have to have concern for others before we'll be comforted and encouraged by good news. So what are we concerned about? Who are we concerned for? How do we show that concern? Is it concern that's not just theoretical, but actual? Going looking for the report, needing the update, even taking time and there being sacrifice to get the update. Behind all this assumes a measure of contact, we could say, of interaction. Paul had spent some time in Thessalonica. Not long, we don't know how long exactly, but not long. And yet, whatever time he had there among these Christians, it obviously was sweet. It was up close. 
Let's, that contact is what stirred, stirred his later concern. And that concern, of course, eventually landed into green pastures of comfort when he heard good news. Good news, not only of their faith and love, but notice verse 6. Timothy also reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. Paul was relieved to know that when they think of the Apostle Paul's visit in Thessalonica, it's all good memories. Wouldn't that be sweet to have someone say that of you? Perhaps they move away from Desert Springs Church, perhaps to another city, and they say, when we think of Desert Springs, it's all good memories. It's almost impossible. I'm sure that's, that's rare, if not unheard of. But, but here it's said, they, they remember us kindly, and they long to see us. They, they long, literally long here. There's angst in it. There's restlessness in it. And so Paul's comforted, comforted. Notice this in verse 8, this interesting sentence. For now we live if, or since, it could be, since you're standing fast in the Lord. For now we live. What's that mean? Now we can breathe. Now we can finally get on with life. John Stott He speaks of it like this. Make sure I have the right quote here in my Bible. He speaks of this passage like this. The Apostle Paul lays bare his heart of love for them. When Timothy came back with good news, Paul was over the moon with joy in thanksgiving. The fact is that his life was inextricably bound up with theirs. For now we really live, he wrote. What is this extravagant language, Stott asks? What is this loving and longing, this intolerable suspense when, there are, when there's no news and this overwhelming joy when the news was good? This affectionate care and fervent prayer, this sense of intimate solidarity with them so that his life was wrapped up in their life and theirs in his This is the language of parents who are separated from their children, who miss them dreadfully and are profoundly anxious when they've had no recent news of them. He says pastoral love is parental love. That's beautiful. And Paul has already spoken in parental terms before in this letter. He was a spiritual parent, you could say, to these new Christians. And so he said back in chapter 2, verse 7, that we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. In verse 11, he said we were like a father with his children to you. And then notice in verse 17 of chapter 2, we were torn away from you. Paul uses parental imagery even there, torn away. It's a verb form of the word for orphan. We were orphaned. The idea being that Paul and the Thessalonians had been painfully separated from each other like a baby torn from its mother. 
As you know, for months there was no contact, no news. And then Timothy arrived with good news of their faith and love and their longing to see Paul. You can, you can imagine he went, Phew. and perhaps he took a good, refreshing nap at that point and woke up afterwards to pick up his pen and begin writing this letter. For now we live since you're standing fast. It doesn't take long into parenting years uh, to know exactly what the Apostle Paul felt for the Thessalonians. Our firstborn's first few days outside the womb were in a NICU, intensive care. And there was a sense in which Sarah and I were holding our breath for those few days. Now, I'm not suggesting that our small trial of a few days in intensive care, especially when everything turned out just fine, it was all that severe. Many of you know trials much more severe than that, even the loss of a baby. But my point is just that, that every parent eventually experiences that kind of parental concern where life seems to be almost on hold while you're waiting for reprieve, resolve, help. Our 20-year-old Caitlin was in uh, Israel in January of this year at the same time that the U.S. took out that Iranian general, at the same time that, the U, uh, that, the, that Iran then bombed a U.S. military base. I don't need to tell you, things can escalate quickly in that part of the world. And as you can probably guess, everything was fine. Caitlin was safe even while she was there, and we were assured that she should be there while she was there. But, but Sarah and I breathed a sigh of relief when she was back on U.S. soil. And while we can all relate to what Paul is talking about here and the language that he uses, let's not forget that his concern is of a spiritual variety. It's not just about safety, not about physical comings and goings like the kind I talked about. In fact, his concern was not really for their safety because they were not in safe circumstances in Thessalonica. They were under affliction, as he wrote earlier. They were experiencing persecution. Paul was relieved, though, because of their spiritual safety, even in the midst of their physical danger. The concern that we find here behind this passage is one also seen in 2 Corinthians 11. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul is providing this list of his various sufferings. It's almost like a resume of his sufferings. And toward the end of this list, we read that in toil and hardship, and many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, those are all his personal, external points of suffering, but then verse 28, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. What do you mean, Paul? Well, 
He says, who is weak in the faith? And I'm not weak. Who's made to fall? And I'm not indignant. You see how Paul had chained his heart to people in such a way that their rising and falling tugged his heart along with it. That's why he could have such great comfort. Just like the writer of 3 John, John the Apostle, he says, I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, your faith, as indeed you're walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Paul would have said to that, amen. I know that well. Now, before we move on, I think each of us should do some sort of spiritual inventory on this specific point. Are we concerned for others? Are we? What are you most concerned for these days? Are you easily encouraged by others? Are you encouraged by what you see and what you hear about others? Are we going out of our way as we should, as the Lord gives us opportunity to, to get reports, to find out how someone's doing? When we sit down with one another, what are we going to talk about? I'm not saying things like the Olympics or where Tom Brady's going to play next year. Those are out of bounds for Christians. But, but for many of us, that's all we do. That's all of where we go with each other. We find the things we have in common that are fun to talk about. We talk about those things, and we need a report. We need a report on each other's souls. And we need to, out of concern for each other, ask and be encouraged by what we hear. And maybe there's no one in your life that is close enough to you where anything like that ever happens. Maybe you're a church attender, you might say, but not a church member. You say, oh, what's the difference? Well, there's a difference. In church membership, we've covenanted together to, to live out what the Bible says Christians are to do. If you're not a member of this church or another gospel-preaching church, we'd encourage you, take that next step. Be not just an attender, but committed and involved and connected. Or perhaps you're a member here, but you... You act like an attender. You come, you go, you, you don't really know anyone and no one knows you. Your, chain, your heart's not chained to people's lives and their ups and downs like we see in this passage. Maybe getting in a community group would be a good thing. Maybe signing up for our prayer force email. Do you do that? There's a, an email list you can get on. You can subscribe to it on uh, our website. You just go to our web address slash prayer. And there you can either submit a prayer request that will go to people who've signed up for receiving prayer requests. Or you can sign yourself up to be on the list among those who receive these prayer requests. It's called the prayer force. Well, we move on in light of prayer to, secondly, a word of thanks, verses 9 and 10. Paul doesn't just stop with his thankfulness worded to the Thessalonians, but he has a word of thanks briefly to God. 
And we'll only spend a a bit of time on this second point because it really flows out of the first point and it quickly launches into our third point. The encouraging report that Paul had. The the comfort and the relief that he felt in verses 6 to 8 led Paul to give thanks to God in verses 9 and following. He says, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God now let's just pause to to take note of this guy who's writing it's the apostle Paul yes with Silas and with Timothy but Paul is uh, he's the most famous of the three he wrote close to half of the New Testament and he's famous or infamous, some might say, for being a former Pharisee. Perhaps he's still trying to get over it. The caricature of Paul that many of us have, even sometimes in the church, is that Paul is, he's the doctrinal guy. He's cold. He's calculated. He sometimes borders on legalism. He's got that in his past. He expects a lot because he does a lot. And he suffered a lot. And here's the Apostle Paul just crushing that caricature. This is so emotive. This is so effusive. This is so personal. I mean, he is wearing his heart on his sleeve in ways that, frankly, would make me feel uncomfortable if I were doing it. If I were writing a a love letter to this church, I'd probably just ease back a little bit from where Paul was. And yet, of course, instead I need to learn from it. Learn from a guy who asks the rhetorical question in verse 9. What thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? He's talking about prayer. And we can't take that for granted. That simple thing, prayer. He's not just being thankful, but he's thanking God. He's not just feeling thankful to God, but he's voicing his thankfulness to God. Even though he lacks, and though we all lack, sufficient words to properly express that thanksgiving. What thanksgiving can we return he's in a state of inexpressible thanks and joy before God and because he lacked the words to properly express his thanks to God he just simply makes those his words I don't have the words Lord what a great lesson for us what a great model for us here in prayer Paul just says There are no words to describe how thankful and full of joy I am before God for this report. And what what report? What's the news? Why is he so thankful? Why is it inexpressible thanks and joy? Well, he was just encouraged that the Thessalonians' faith was true faith. And that true faith was living itself out in love for others. That's really basic stuff, isn't it? I assume that's the kind of stuff that many of us simply take for granted. 
I am speechless in my thankfulness to God because you're still believing. You're still at it. You haven't given up. You love each other. That's really important. It's, it's essential. It's what true faith does. You see, behind this passage is this idea of perseverance. All true Christians do indeed persevere. They stick it out. They don't stop believing. But that doesn't mean that everyone who professes Christ perseveres. 1 John 2.19 Some went out from us because they weren't of us. If they had been of us, they no doubt would have continued with us. But they went out from us that it might be shown they were never really of us. And this is the sad story of Judas. This is Demas who ironically left Paul having loved this present world. And he went to Thessalonica. Something was in Thessalonica that vied for his attention. And he chose that, whatever it was, over the Lord. I've been in pastoral ministry long enough to know that when someone says that they're now a Christian and it looks genuine and you give insurance, you encourage assurance with that brother or sister. They're baptized. You're beginning to see fruit. It may not be the real thing. You don't tell them that. But you do warn them. We have to keep on. Like Journey, the rock band says, don't stop believing. You don't have to hold on to that feeling, but you don't stop believing. That's why this pretty basic stuff, they kept believing and they loved each other, had Paul speechless. Because it's not a given. It's not a given. Paul's thankfulness led him also to pray specifically for a return to Thessalonica in verse 10. We pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Wait, what? Something's lacking in their faith? Paul had been speaking about his confidence in their faith as far back as chapter 1 verse 3. And he just most recently said in chapter 3, verse 6, that Timothy brought back good news of their faith. Why does he now speak of something lacking in their faith? Well, it's because it's true. And it's not just true of them. It's true of every Christian until death or Jesus comes back. In the imagery of John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, we're all pilgrims. We're on our way to the celestial city, but we're not there yet. And sometimes we find ourselves in the, the slew of despond. But we're on our way, and hopefully we're making progress. And yet the pilgrimage isn't done. And in this pilgrimage, there are some things that we may know 
that we're lacking. We're quite aware of it. You might know those hot spots of temptation that are unique to you. Anger, short temper, pride, lust. And you're seeking to have those holes in your faith supplemented. And there's some other areas for each of us that we're, we're not quite aware of where we have lack. And those could be doctrinal. The, the tricky thing with doctrine that we have wrong is we don't know that it's wrong. I think it was R.C. Sproul who said, if I knew that I was believing something unbiblical, I would just change it. <laughs> it's easy, but you don't know. And so we go to the Bible, and we go to the Bible, and we grow from each other, and we listen to God's word being taught. And perhaps in days ahead, the Lord will reveal from his word uh, areas in which we believed X, but now we should believe Y, or something crystallizes. And we also are not aware of, well, what is the best and right spiritual diagnosis for our souls at any given time? Sin is by nature blinding. So we need each other. We need others. The Thessalonians needed Paul. Paul was eager to go to them because he wanted to supplement what was lacking in their faith. If you want to know what specifically they were lacking in their faith, just read on chapters 4 and 5 and into 2 Thessalonians. Paul desired to be there in person, ideally, to shore up what was lacking in their faith, but he was content also to write about some things that they had wrong, some things they need strengthening, some things that need filling out in their faith until he was able to come. And so Paul prays earnestly, it says, regularly, day and night, for God to allow him to see this church face to face. And that leads, thirdly, to his prayer for more. A prayer for more. Really, this petition that is referenced in verse 10 begins to be spelled out in actual prayer in verses 11 to 13. Let me just read this marvelous prayer here again. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. He's praying for more. He's thankful for what's there, and he boldly prays for more. Notice some small details before we get into the content of this prayer. Notice that it begins on a Trinitarian foundation in verse 11. Notice, our God and Father and our Lord Jesus. That's who he's addressing. Now, all three persons of the Trinity were referred to back in chapter 1. In verse 3, he talked about our God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 5, uh, the gospel came to you in power in the Holy Spirit. There, all three persons of the Trinity in chapter 1. Here in our passage, only two persons of the Trinity are mentioned. But, but there's 
both distinction and unity in the relationship between father and son. It's classical Trinitarian language. Our God and Father and our Lord Jesus. Paul is addressing Jesus alongside God the Father in prayer. He's praying to Jesus. There's that distinction in person. There's Father and there's Jesus the Son. But a unified address. They're prayed to equally. And notice what he's asking God the Father and the Lord Jesus to do, to direct our way to you. That's a matter of sovereignty. That's a matter of providence. That's a matter reserved for the divine. So here in 1 Thessalonians, one of the earliest documents of the New Testament, and Paul is addressing Jesus as divine now that out of the way, let's look at three requests that he makes in verses 11, 12, and 13. In each of them, he's praying for more. So in verse 11, he's praying for more time with these people. We've already seen it from verse 10. He wants to get there so he can supply what is lacking in their faith. So verse 11 is the actual prayer. May God the Father and the Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Remember he said earlier in verse 18 of chapter 2 that Satan had hindered them from going to Thessalonica? Now there are some Christians who would think that because of that problem, Satan hindering, the solution should be rebuking Satan, binding Satan, you know, barking at Satan. He doesn't do that. He prays that God would direct their steps. God is bigger than Satan. God's the one who's ultimately in charge. Yes, Satan is real, and he may be involved in our troubles, but we go to God for help. He prays for more love among them. Verse 12, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. There's already reference to their love back in verse 6 with Timothy's report. And Paul isn't content with whatever he's heard about their love. He's zealous for them to love each other more. Increase in love. Abounding in love. It's literally overflowing in love for one another. Let's keep in mind a, a church context like that in Thessalonica would have been made up of Jews and Gentiles. We learn from Acts 17, there were Jews from the synagogue who became Christians, and there were leading Greek women, leading women, women with power, women with money, in the same church. Presumably there were poor and wealthy in the same church. And so love lived out among people with these kind of differences, let alone the, the massive historic tensions and rivalries between rich and poor, Greek and Jew, well, that might signal to the world something strange is afoot here. 
Things don't usually work like this. People like this don't usually get together, let alone get along so well. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And so may we, Desert Springs Church, may we thank God for whatever modicum of love we see among us, love that is shown between us, sacrifices that are made for any of us. And may we do it more and more and more. And may we, like Paul, pray about it, pray for it, don't assume it, don't presume it, don't coast. It's like an escalator. You, you coast on this love, it lessens. It's forward, forward, forward. We need more. And Paul boldly prays for more. And then he prays for more, what we might call holy hope in verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in the holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Now whatever that means, notice its connection to love. You see, love in verse 12, so that, verse 13, or, or unto this end, what end? that he might establish your hearts blameless in holiness. Our love for each other is for whatever verse 13 means. And it's thick, isn't it? In short, he's praying for hearts to be further established. Hearts which are, he says, blameless and holy. Hearts which are like that now and at the end. Of time. He's praying for both now and in the end. Now, may he establish your heart. That's present tense. And may this be the case in the end, at the coming of our Lord Jesus, when we stand before God. So he's praying, I think, sort of a both and thing here. He's praying that on the last day, these people would have hearts that are fully and perfectly purified, blameless because Christ in their place was blameless, perfect, holy. But I think he's also praying for them to have a little bit more of a taste of that even now. And in that sense, blameless wouldn't mean perfection, would it? Because we Christians will still sin this side of death or Jesus' return. In that sense, blameless would mean you know, genuineness or sincerity, a life that befits true saving faith. That would be blameless. And whatever will be on that last day, we want to pray for more of it even now. It's such a lofty prayer. Makes me think again, my prayers are too shallow. My prayers are too short. My prayers are too near-sighted. Paul has his eye on them and the horizon of the return of Christ. He's not just praying that they would have a good day today. A good day tomorrow. No, I've, I've prayed that way. 
I pray that for my kids before they leave for school. Hopefully, in my better prayers, I fill that out a little bit more. What do I mean by a good day today? Hopefully, it's a godly day. Hopefully, they walk with the Lord. Hopefully, they cast their burdens on him. Hopefully, they trust him. But but may I stretch that out. May I pray more prayers that they would endure until the end. May I pray those kind of prayers for you. Not just for you to get that job that you really need. And I'm glad to pray for it. But I pray whatever path the Lord takes you on, it lands before the Lord in glory at the coming of Christ with your hearts blameless, holy, solid, established. Paul's praying here at the end of chapter 3 about that which is really about the whole letter, persevering hope. Hope, that's the word for the return of Christ in the letter to the Thessalonians. Hope, the return of Christ is transformative. It's it's all important. It's what matters most. What matters most isn't how this coronavirus thing is going to go. What matters most is not the outcome of the 2020 election. I didn't say those things don't matter, but they don't matter most. My heart isn't chained to those things. I want my heart to be chained to the appearing of the Lord Jesus. I want my prayers for you, my prayers for myself. I want your prayers for me to be chained to eternity, chained to this most important thing of what will become of standing before God in that last day. People talk these days of not wanting to be on the wrong side of history. I get that. But isn't it way more important to not be on the wrong side of eternity? Isn't that what our passage is saying? Isn't that what we should be praying? Isn't that what we should be longing for? Isn't that what should be of utmost concern for us? And what will one day be of such great comfort to us? The the comfort that we get right now from Oh, you're still here? You still trust Jesus in the midst of that crud you're going through? The comfort that we should get from supernatural love, however small, however infrequent it is that's shown between us, that we should be encouraged, yes, but there's coming a day when we will be so comforted, so encouraged when it's all said and done. Eric Alexander was for a long time a a Scottish pastor. He preached a a message at the 350th anniversary of the Westminster Assembly, which produced the Westminster Confession of Faith. There at the Westminster Abbey, he asked, what is the really important thing that is happening in the world in our generation? 
Where are the really significant events taking place? What is the most important thing? What do you need to look at in the modern world to see the most significant event from a divine perspective? Where is the focus of God's activity in, the, in, the, in history? And then he answers, the most significant thing happening in history is the calling, redeeming, and perfecting of the people of God. God is building the church of Jesus Christ. The rest of history is simply a stage God erects for that purpose. History's great climax comes when God brings down the curtain on the bankrupt world and the Lord Jesus arrives in his infinite glory. The rest of history is simply the scaffolding for the real work. Well, let's pray. Oh, Lord, give us the faith to believe that and live like it and pray like it. The most important thing you're doing, Lord Jesus, is building your church. And despite what looks to be shaky and slowly built, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You will have your way. You will finish what you started in individuals and in a people, your church, your body. Lord, help us to live in a way that befits your coming and your work in the church even now. We pray in your strong and saving name, Jesus. Amen.